Binge Heads. It's time to head back to the rocket ship forest because the Binge Mode Weekly Archive, as well as our complete Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, and Binge Mode Star Wars seasons are now available to listen to for free exclusively on Spotify. Warning. Binge Mode contains adult content. Oh boy, does it. Folks, the chapters of Saga that we're going to be discussing on this episode feature a blood-covered, six-nippled wolf called the Endwife, a black hole-esque cosmic body-destroying, infant-shaped creature, multiple lovely panels dedicated to female ejaculation. So if that's not your thing, please check out Higher Learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're collecting magic mushrooms to use as signal flares, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, Binge Mode. Promise you won't get mad? Uh-oh. I don't want to have babies. Not ever, never. Well, that's not something you have to decide right now. I didn't decide. I just kind of... No. I'm so, so glad you guys made me, but I maybe want to make other stuff. Awesome. For real? You won't be sad if you never have a kajillion grandbabies? Uh, honey girl, I don't care what you do, as long as you're kind to everyone you meet. That's it? That is the hardest part of being alive. to Binge Mode Weekly. Yeah. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! Great website. It's fabulous. Joining me today, now that he's finished watching the Will's memories on his magic VCR. Mm-hmm. It's Ringer Senior Creative, your favorite hebdomadal scribe, and Steve, can I get a little drum roll, please? Your co-host of new Ringer podcast, The Connect with Jason and Shay. Subscribe, Woo! follow if you haven't. It's Jason Concepcion. Mal, sweet boy, come here. Sweet boy, sweetie. No. Mal, oh, where no. is he? Oh, Have God. you seen sweet boy? Where is he? Buddy, I got bad news. Ch- check the floor. Oh, no. I know. Well, terrible. Any, in any case, welcome to Binge Mode <laughs> Weekly, where as we social distance amid the coronavirus uh, pandemic, we're coming to you occasionally to cover a series of rotating topics, revisiting some past favorites, diving into some new stories as well, while also getting to work on the next full Binge Mode project. Stay tuned mm-hmm. for more info on that front, probably when it is legitimately the hottest. Please subscribe to this <laughs> podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us those 
five star ratings or Ayanthi will be most displeased. She sucks. She sucks. (laughs) Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, AKA the underscore and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans which is an excellent place to share your Squire and Goose go-on-an-adventure spinoff ideas. I got a lot of them. Also, if you're looking to spice up your work-from-home wardrobe before zooming into your chat with Zloty, please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. Last time on Binge Mode Weekly, we explored issues 19 through 36 of Saga, the riveting Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples epic space opera from Image Comics. And today... We're diving deep. Deep! (laughs) Into book three, a.k.a. volume seven through nine, a.k.a. issues 37 through 54, a.k.a. the final installments before Saga's mid-run hiatus, which began in July of 2018. It's a long time ago. Damn. Please don't let this be another George (laughs) R.R. Martin situation. That's it. Oh, my God. We can't handle another one of those. George, we still believe in you. Seems like you're making great progress right now with wins, buddy. We support you. We encourage you. We can't wait to see what you've been on. Don't not another Patrick Rothfuss, not another George R. R. Martin situation, please. Suddenly craving some loot music. <laughs> As always, spoiler warning. While today's primary focus is those issues of Saga, 37 through 54, we will be taking the entire 54 issue run to date into account as we chat. So keep your eyes peeled for Time Sucks, because it's time to head to Fang. Mal, every new world we visit was an adventure, and few adventures ended worse than this one. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Saga. Chapters 37 to the devastating 54 by making the trek to the rocket ship forest. Reunited aboard their rocket ship. Marco and Alana dote over Hazel, wonder how to broach with her. The presence of her impending sibling currently forming, gestating in Alana's belly. Meanwhile, Prince Robot and Petricor are acclimating to new surroundings and new company. A mechanical issue with the ship, a, a, a carpentry issue. How do we, mm. how do we, what's the correct terminology here? Yeah, a woodworking issue. Forces the party to land at the nearest possible waypoint, the war-torn comet Fang. Fang is Uh. home to a wondrous variety of races uh, who unfortunately hold each other in terrible enmity. Fang's civil unrest drew the attention of Landfall and Wreath, who sought to exploit the comet's rich supply of natural resources. Tragically, those resources include Fang's people, many of whom became refugees. Boy, if Yuma had just still been around to plug this fuel leak... None of this fang business would have had to unfold this way. You know what? She was more trouble than she was worth. (laughs) She went out on a high note, and I'm happy. A literal high note, and and I'm happy to see her uh, be gone. (laughs) Fang, of course, is Sophie's homeworld. And speaking of Sophie, seasoned by her adventures, the young page intends to become a freelancer, setting her career goals early. Gwendolyn is against this. It's a dangerous and soul-eroding pursuit. Our family and their companions land on Fang, and they meet a community of ferret creatures clinging to survival amidst the ruins of their homes. Marco and Alana take them in, and a grand extended family takes root 
in and around the rocket ship tree. For six months, the family thrives, basking in one another's company. Hazel and Curti, a young Fang native, become close. I was wondering what animal we were going to compare Curti and Co to. I was leaning toward like, like a prairie dog, almost. Oh, that might be those. That might be a prairie dog. Yeah, like what are those? Um, the ones that stand up and they're always like just standing up and looking around at stuff. Meerkats. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah, they're meerkats. Yeah. Is meerkat a yeah. ferret? Are they like? Are they similar? <laughs> Four, nay, Prince Robot, now Sir Robot, is eager to return to Squire ahead of the young lad's birthday. He means to travel to an abandoned robot kingdom embassy on Fang to acquire the necessary fuel stores that may still be there in order to repair the fuel leak on the rocket ship. The journey through an active war zone would, of course, be treacherous. And Isabel makes a truly selfless and ultimately fateful decision, offering to scout ahead for four. At the embassy, Isabel is ambushed by the two-headed freelancer, the March. The freelancer interrogates Isabel. When Hazel Sitter refuses to reveal information, the March runs her through with a black-bladed sword, killing her again, and this time for good. Bells for Isabel! Bells for our beautiful phantom babysitter. What a wise soul she was. Here's my take on the March. Fuck the march. However, I'm into bootstraps as a sidekick. I, I, I sidekicks thus far have basically the highest batting percentage of any character class in this story. Not a bad one yet. Not enough lying cat in book three. Not nearly enough. Across the comment, Hazel feels the severing of the connection that she shares with her babysitter, Isabel. Four, realizing that something might have gone horribly wrong, tells the family where Isabel went. And Marco is about to set out after her when Petricor stops him and insists that Petricor should be the one who goes instead. Hazel and Curti's bonds grow stronger. Oh, boy, do they. Gazing at a battle raging in the distance, the two share stories and eventually a kiss. Back at the embassy, the march finds the robot ambassador and there's been an attack and the ambassador has been torn in two in his dying moments. The ambassador tells the March that the freelancer is involved in something much bigger than they imagine. Everyone on Fang will soon be exterminated, but before the ambassador can reveal why and by whom he dies. Four visits Alana in her headquarters and he is wasted high on fadeaway purloined from Yuma still finding ways to fuck things up for our characters, even from the grave. He says that he's attracted to Alana, but that he's realized it doesn't have anything to do with sex. That's not what it's about. It's about what a great mother Alana is, what a great mother she would be to his son. And he puts his arm cannon to his temple and tells her to please help Squire be a better man than he was. Stop taking this drug. Get it out of here. Uh, just throw it away. Awful. When Marco stumbles upon the situation, Robot takes a shot at him. Marco parries this with his shield, and Alana takes the opportunity to knock four out. Just outside the ship, the march lays hands on Curdy. Blade to Curdy's throat, they yell for Marco and his family to show themselves. Hazel 
getting in touch with her Rethian magic, cast a fireworks spell, which distracts the freelancer, allowing Marco to gun them down. Again, setting aside his vow of peace in order to protect his family. Petricor returns to the ship carrying fuel and also news that Fang is headed right for a time suck. You just have to look up. It's massive. And it's it's shaped like a baby that's about to kill them all. The crew prepares to flee. To Alana's great sadness, this is a really moving sequence, Curdy and the rest of their Fang tribe refuse to leave their home, believing that their creator will spare them, will provide for them. And in the end, Fang is obliterated due to the secret agreement between Landfall, Wreath, the Robot Kingdom. Our family barely gets away. But the turbulent launch causes Alana to suffer a miscarriage. While this is happening on Fang, the will is doing the stereotypical thing that tortured men in the galaxy seem to do, which is hang out in some kind of brothel. He's having trouble picking up new freelancer gigs, been dropped by the union. The fact that he's been addicted to fadeaway since the stock's death and that he failed his last drug test certainly are part of this. Even his lance, officially a freelancer weapon, has been deactivated. Rough book for the will. (laughs) It's very tough times for him. Man, he manages at last to track down Gwen, Sophie, and Lioncat. He's hoping that Lioncat will rejoin him as his sidekick again. He offers to train Sophie as well in the ways of freelancing so that she and Lioncat can remain together. But they're shocked at his state, shocked at his appearance, shocked at his demeanor, all of it. And they choose to stay, choose to stay with Gwen. It's like I just started catching up on the challenge again, and it's like seeing oh, CT, yeah. CT CT after all these years. <laughs> still crushes it, though. He still crushes it. We find Alana and Robot on Pervious, an Old West planet noted for performing abortion procedures because Alana was so far along, she has to go to the Badlands, the only place that will perform a late-term procedure. When she, Marco, Petricor, and Hazel are attacked by dung people, Alana incinerates them with magic. What? Bum, bum, Uh bum! In a boxcar, heading toward the Badlands, a vision, a projection of Marco and Alana's child, Curdy, appears to the family. It's a forecast, Marco says, a powerful projection spell which simulates a possible future, what could have been. Curdy acts like a normal child and quickly forges a really touching bond with Hazel. But the strain of casting the spell continually will prove fatal to Alana. Soon after arriving in the Badlands, Alana collapses. With Marco's guidance, Hazel casts Fulmo, a sparking incantation which Hazel uses to kickstart her mother's heart. Just then, a she-wolf with bloody hands comes out of a spooky house to welcome them, the Endwife. As the Endwife commences the procedure, Hazel sings future Curdy a lullaby. Slowly, slowly, Curdy fades away. Back by Ugh. the rocket ship, Four rescues Petrichor from a gang of outlaw centaurs, the beginning of what eventually becomes a romantic relationship. In a flashback, we see the Will's introduction to freelancing. Good old Uncle Steve. <laughs> These recollections are being streamed by Yanthi, a 
mysterious figure who has taken the will prisoner to exact revenge, as we learn, for her fiance, Hector, whom the will murdered in the effort to free Sophie from Sextilian. Ianthi continues scrolling through the will's memories, and there she learns of Marco, Alana, and Hazel. The rocket ship family returns to Squire, Goose, Upshur, and Doff, but they have no idea of the danger now coming for them in the form of Ianthi. They do have an idea that Robot is coming, however, because he and Petricor are now going at it hot and heavy on the reg. <laughs> uh, just a couple rooms away in the rocket ship. Robot, in fact, has fallen hard for Petri. Great relationship. Yeah. On the ship, Upshur and Doff finally asked Marco and Alana if they could take their relationship on the record, tell their story to the world. In exchange, the reporters would allow them to benefit from the Hebdomadal Source Protection Program, which allows them to go into hiding in completely new magical bodies, which... Honestly, in this particular case, sounds like a terrible trade-off because I know. Have you guys seen Marco and Alana? This, this is a beautiful. This these are two beautiful beings. <laughs> they look great. They really look great. They decline, not just because they're hot, but because Hazel's biology, as they movingly attest, is a gift. Imagine being that hot. I can't. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't imagine it. Robot offers the crestfallen reporters some information as a bomb. When he was on his sex bender, he heard a story about a Landfallian soldier who admitted that Landfall destroyed Fang in collusion with Wreath. It's a galaxy-shaking allegation. Robot offers to tell his story in exchange for placing himself, Squire, and Petricor in the SPP. Sometime later, in an abandoned carnival lot, on the planet Jetsam. Families refueling the ship, always needing to refuel. Constantly, constantly, constantly. Goodness. Upshur and Doff are working on Force Story. Robot is eager to begin the body change process. Petricor has been using the downtime to teach Hazel how to fight, continuing that bonding process. Hazel still has a lot of animosity toward Four. And a huge part of that here centers on the fact that in Squire, she finally has a companion her own age, a, a person she considers a brother. And he's going to be leaving. He's going to be going into hiding. These feelings are soon compounded with additional sadness when she learns that Petricor will also be joining Squire and Robot. Squire, he's not actually planning to go along. He's planning to run away. Marco, meanwhile, has been writing a novel titled The Calligrapher. Lana gives Amazing. a few notes. Too many adverbs, which is a common issue for many writers. <laughs> and also, it's good. <laughs> meanwhile, Four's bombshell story will be the cover of the next hebdomadal issue. The transformation materials will be sent that very evening. Before any of that can happen, though, two events take place. Agent Gale... Fucking Agent Gale, again, successfully kills the story after he threatens Upshur and Doff's editor with outing them as gay in a very homophobic society and has the Landfallian soldier that the story is based on killed. Ugh, hideous. And Ianthi arrives on the planet and after a struggle, murders Doff. But in the chaos, the will escapes her control. Give us those bells. 
Darth. Deonthe discovers the runaway squire while she is searching for the will. The rest of the gang is, of course, searching for squire. But instead, four comes across the will, who, of course, has been hunting for this moment of vengeance for years. First, he skewers four's arm with the now, but it turns out only briefly functioning lance. Revenge for the stock is at hand. Things are moving quickly now. And after a skirmish, Alana is injured by a blast to one of her wings and Upshur shoots Ianthi. She lies down on the sand, blood pouring off her torso and asks to die. Marco finds the will in four. He offers to surrender if the will will let four go. Instead, the will tears off four's head. Bells for Sir Robot the Fourth. Bells. Complicated guy. As they all are. I was just starting to really like this guy. I was warming up to him. (laughs) It's tough (laughs) timing. (laughs) (laughs) Enraged, Marco tackles the will. The two go crashing through the walls of Bianchi's ship. The will manages to get the ship to blast off. All eyes on the planet turn upwards to the jellyfish-like craft as it shoots through the clouds. Marco gets the upper hand, but chooses not to deliver the killing blow in a Prince Oberon-type moment. God. Which gives the will the opening he needs to kill Marco. His last thoughts are of his daughter. Bells for Marco! Bells. Give us so many bells for Marco. So many. The sound of feathers and horns. The sound of our tears. Man, at least, you know, Oberyn, he was he was flexing. He was making a speech. There was a, there was a reason for it. The violence was still in his heart. Yes, he got cocky. He got careless. But he needed to hear those words. He needed that confession. Marco, man, of all the moments to choose to honor the pledge to yourself. He just kind of like went into a reverie, just kind of like zoned out. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a beautiful view looking down upon Jetsum, inc- to be fair. Beautiful view. Very, very, I, very, when, very, I, very, very when I read this, you, you of course, we, we started doing these podcasts because you had recommended Saga to me. You had read it first, sent it my way, prepared me for some some heartache, but I had no idea what level of heartache awaited. And I texted you the second, the second that I finished issue 54. And I said, there's been a mistake. This cannot be true. We're going to talk about this more later as we get to our theme. But of course, you know, not only that it's true, but that it had to be this way, that it is, of course, at the heart of what the story is about. And yet that is the source of what makes it so agonizing, this idea of the violence that you can't escape even when you commit your entire life, dedicate your life to trying to. It's just heart-wrenching. It's shocking. And, you know, Andy Greenwald often talks about those uh, those moments that presage a beloved character's death um, that often involve like staring at the sunset with someone uh, that character loves and talking about how great things are or how great things look or talking about like, let's sail, let's get a sailboat and sail off to, uh, you know, the island of let's live forever. Um, but Marco was just a warm and loving and, and for the most part, 
with a few notable exceptions, an extremely generous and kind person all the time, especially when it came to his family. And so this is just, it was, it's so brutal. And there's a troubling lack of ambiguity <laughs> in, in what you're seeing. And you know that it's legit and it's real and it's final and it's, yes. It's, Devastating. Jason. Yes. The only action that has vaster repercussions for the universe than making a life is taking one, which is why I'll never understand why most people put so little foresight into doing either. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's head for a nighttime smoke. The defining theme of this episode is loss. Marco, Alana, and Hazel. We have spoken throughout our discussion about Saga of the outsized role that Hazel's narration plays in this tale and the way it frames everything we see and we understand. The future clarity it injects at crucial mile markers as the family's journey unfolds panel by panel. The opening image and line of chapter 37 is a perfect example of this. Hazel growing, but still young enough to hold punk conk in her hand as she sleeps. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Rests on her pillow, drooling blissfully, the portrait of peace and childhood splendor. She may have horns and wings and magical iridescent flowers floating around her and a great many beings pursuing her across the galaxy, but there's a normalcy about this image. It's relatable. You understand it. You've seen it a million times. You've lived it in your own life. A young person evolving and maturing, making her way through life's myriad adventures and tragedies. The narration is this. Families are goddamn wildfires. Those words promise a growth of their own lives, yes, but also something that can't be contained, something that can't be controlled, and that leaves wreckage in its wake. Marco and Alana are also watching Hazel sleep, and they're thinking about the way that life surprises us, too. They're all back together again after years apart. You're searching for each other. And Alana is pregnant. Hazel. Marco says, is still processing how to be part of this family again. This family, of course, isn't even supposed to exist. The war between Landfall and Wreath still defines so many galactic realities, and the forces that aim to keep the Landfallians and the Wreathians apart don't want Alana and Marco to be together. Their love and commitment to each other and to a different way of life threatens the very foundation of a system built on hate, mistrust, fear. But Marco and Alana and Hazel have always understood that and indeed have used that understanding to fuel their conviction, just as the contents of their hearts and minds help to guide the rocket ship that casts them across the sky. And so it is absolutely heart-wrenching to return to these opening images of book three, knowing what awaits, and to see Alana say, my little girl's going to be a big sister. Their baby's death Marco's death, a relentless surge of loss and despair. That saga-defining cycle, gain, loss, love, and relief, continues to spin on Fang, where our motley crew heads after the rocket ship's fuel leak. Fang, you will recall, is the homeworld of Sophie. And here again, as Lana calls the stone a, quote, meat grinder, we're reminded of how most of the galaxy feels about this particular location. Fang, as Hazel tells us, 
is, quote, an exotic land of boundless diversity, home to thousands of different tribes, sects, and species, which sounds great. Yep. There is a there is a rub, however. Quote, almost all of whom despised each other. Ah, the war between landfall and wreath has, of course, touched this place as well, siding with different factions in the Fang Rebellion. And just as in the real world, the sides are motivated by more than ideology. They're motivated by Fang's notable fuel reserves. And controlling that resources means controlling the power. And as we learned from Gwendolyn, Wreath is taking aim at the comet, a forbidding warning just as our rocket ship family is making its way there. Quote, every new world we visited was an adventure, Hazel tells us. And few adventures ended worse than this one. As soon as the ship takes root on Fang, our crew meets a local, Curdy, asking for food. So cute and meek that it almost seems like it has to be an act, a tactic that is designed to get our guarded gang to let down their walls, make themselves vulnerable to a new form of incursion via Curdy and his family. But in this case, at least, Vaughn and Staples are not setting us up for that kind of bait and switch. They're setting us up for more bonds built and then decimated in the theater of war. The, quote, fine folks of Fang. Don't fall for Isabel's horror magic. They are wise to the ways of the world. They are attuned to deception. Their home has been destroyed by so much violence, so many forces. They need sustenance and shelter, not more drama. We've been wandering this land for ages, Jabara says. When Hazel invites them into the rocket ship, Alana is dubious at first, not because she's heartless, but because her primary objective is to keep her own family safe. Marco, though, sees the common threads of grief and carnage. These are innocent people, he says, displaced by an evil war. They're us. Whew. Reliable help has been precious for Marco and Alana, but all too rare. So the chance to provide that very thing for someone else is a sacred responsibility in Marco's mind. And over the six months that our pals wound up spending on Fang, energy-rich soil my ass, that responsibility turned into a privilege. And that privilege turned into love. Alana prepares meals for the children. Jabara gifts Alana with a bracelet cherished for its role in pregnancy. The tribe knows that the rocket ship has taken longer to refuel because it's providing for so many more beings. But what's the point of having something if you can't share it with others? Our tribe, Alana says, taking Jabara's hand. As war rages around them, quite close by, and decimation approaches, they've forged an unlikely but fierce bond, the family you choose. As always in Saga, not everyone warms as quickly. Petrichor tries to convince Marco that the, quote, clan of beasts you people have stupidly aligned with will tear apart our family from within. Marco's reply is heartening and aspirational. If my wife has taught me anything, it's that there's no such thing as their kind. We see the truth of this as we often do in Saga through Hazel, who finds a best friend and more in Curdy. Their journey of shared discovery is layered and complex. They find joy in exploding bugs together through Hazel's spell working. Then shame when Isabel scolds them for hurting a living thing. And then rage when Hazel screams at Isabel for embarrassing her. Rage that will, of course, lead to brutal remorse when Isabel dies 
shortly after this falling out. The lesson Isabel tried to impart before Hazel snapped is one that resonates even more after her death. We can fix him, Miss Isabel, Curdie says. We can't fix death, Curdie. No spell, as Dumbledore would tell them, can reawaken the dead. Magic and splendor abound in Saga, but the loss lingers, shaping what is left behind. And for Isabel, there wasn't much left but pain after her first death, her mortal death. That changed, though, when Alana bound her to Hazel. And Marco and Alana and Hazel all welcomed Isabel into their family. They've treated me like they're flesh and blood, she tells for, adding as she gazes into the heavens in one of the series' most moving panels, they showed me the universe. She had been trapped, bound to cleave. And this family allowed her to explore, to believe that something else was possible. That declaration of gratitude comes mere moments before Isabel's fatal run-in with the March, who, remember, we first met back in issue eight as a floating hologram head. Their sidekick, bootstraps, stun Isabel by trapping her in a lasso and then stabbing her with a almost like dark saber-esque blade that they promise in advance will not just banish her as, say, Clara's magic once did in the Fard days. Fard! A simpler time. But will eliminate her permanently. There's no coming back, they say, from our kind of killing. Recall when Alana first agreed to bind Isabel to Hazel's soul and asked if it would hurt. What did Isabel say in reply? Only on the day it ends. Hazel's narration upon Isabel's second death reads thusly. No babysitter sticks around forever, but the best ones never really leave you, do they? And that's true. A reminder for Hazel and so many of us that the mark that someone makes on us lingers long after they're gone. But that absence still creates a void that, for a time at least, nothing but agony can fill. Somebody help me, Hazel shouts. It's Isabel. I can't feel her anymore. I think she's gone. There's something about this phrasing that is just devastating. I can't feel her anymore. When someone you love dies, there is a hole where they used to be, a them-shaped void that memories and gratitude will fill in time, but that in the wake of death functions almost as a black hole or like a phantom limb that's just that you feel is there but is not there. And the pain and despair and confusion and other emotions you feel so keenly are joined by the absence of all the other emotions. A meaningful bond elicits when it's thriving. For Isabel and Hazel, the magic that linked them formalized that sensation. But it's there, of course, for anyone who feels anything for any other person. Sooner or later, Jabara says, every last echo fades. Of course, for Hazel, her guilt has not faded. It's fierce because she was cruel to Isabel in their last interaction. Saga manages consistently to cast the most relatable human fears into the center of this story, right there next to the magical creatures and cheese-covered fard balls and (laughs) dragon jizz. What if the last thing you said to someone you loved hurt them? And what if they didn't blame you, but you maybe thought they did? How long can it take to work through that shame and make your way back to peace and understanding and acceptance, like Jack wandering the island trying to fix things for other people because he couldn't fix them with his own father. Ah, Jack, what a guy. Hazel, of course, has seen more than her share of loss already. She asks Curdy if he believes in paradise, and he says, 
like where we go after we die. Sure. That's where my mom and dad and big sister are. So again, this is another thing that unites these two young people, all of the suffering. But when he asks Hazel what she thinks, she's utterly clear-minded about it, dismayingly jaded for a child so young. Quote, that it's all just a fakey story they tell, she says, adding shortly thereafter, another made-up lie they tell us so we won't be scared. But we should be. We should be scared. And Hazel would know because her life has been defined by that fear. But also, of course, by the comfort and possibility of finding joy and belonging together. And so when she kisses Curdy here, that first thrilling little peck in a young person's life, it's so utterly saga-esque, so fitting that the background of that spark of bliss is pain. They are on a war-torn comet. They're mourning Isabel, and they're anticipating more misery ahead. But they know they can't give in to that fully. That's no way to live. In saga, loss and love are often wrapped up in one another. In the beginning, Hazel's narration reads here, love is mostly about lying to each other. It's like that in the end, too. Across Saga, we're introduced to myriad creatures and magical objects that make lasting impressions. But one of the quietly potent entries is the blue cap, a fungi that springs up on Fang, quote, in places of conflict to remember tales of battle. We only get a few panels with the blue cap from Petrichor's perspective. But there's something entrancing about the idea of a war memorial of source that plants and informs and lives, in a sense, designed not only to mark the past, but to guide the future. Loss embodied and loss as not only a source of sorrow, but as a way to channel that sorrow into learning and growth and information. Life's lessons, whether from a blue cap or our own experience, aren't always heeded. And sometimes they are to our peril. Earlier, after Marco mentioned the family's experience with a time suck from our first episode, Jabara said that Fang had nearly collided with the celestial horror once, quote, but the blessings from above protected the comet. When Petrichor informs Jabara of the time suck now in Fang's path, Jabara once again preaches faith. This confidence, this faith is, is aspirational and inspirational but can also be dangerous, as Petrichor had previously warned, quote, you have the future to think about, and you've surrounded yourself with people who think only of the past. And that comes despite Jabara's prior dressing down of Marco's tactical, almost cold assessment. Fang may just be a position to you, Jabara says, but this world, this land is my family. Her voice has been guiding us for generations. Marco's back on Fang the first place he killed someone, and he's recalling the exhilaration that he felt when he took another life. The still palpable nature of that rush is at the core of the pledge that he's made to himself to stay away from weapons, from instruments of death, the pledge that he struggles so mightily to uphold, and the one that ultimately will, in part, cost him his life when in a decisive moment against the will, he manages to uphold that vow at last. Jabara tells Marco, who's reluctant to wield his sword, but is very aptly armed with a shield, positioning himself, in other words, as a protector, not one inflicting harm, that, quote, any tool is only as good or evil as the person who wields it. And this reminds us so powerfully of that really wondrous moment in Star Wars Rebels, when the Bendu tells Kanan, an object cannot make you good or evil. 
the temptation of power, forbidden knowledge, even the desire to do good can lead some down that path. But only you can change yourself. Marco has tried to change himself, has devoted his life to that change and the possibility that can bloom in the soil that that kind of change enriches. But he's done it to protect his family, and that is the inherent catch-22 from which he ultimately cannot escape. Because sometimes in Saga's universe, protecting requires a sword, not a shield. The late D. Oswald Heist once said that the opposite of war is fucking, but I'm not so sure, Hazel's narration reads, as we realize that Marco has, in fact, picked up a weapon and gunned down the march as they threatened Alana and Hazel especially because a violence seems to have so much in common with an untreatable venereal disease. It burrows deep inside of everyone it touches, flaring up again and again to hurt others until the day it finally consumes its host. Hell of a quote. In a horrific scene, the time suck consumes Fang as Jabara, Kurdi, and their tribe choose to stay behind trusting in their deity to spare them from the destruction. Jabara preaches trust in the Lord as the time suck decimates the comet. The dissonance is so stark, so unmooring. It recalls Ted Chiang's Hell is the Absence for God, a riveting theological sci-fi novella about the nature of devotion. Just read this. Amazing. (laughs) Can you still believe when you see hell open up beneath you? Is that why you do? Is a blessing affirming when it comes in the form of flame and bloodletting glass? Pages prior, Hazel's narration read, quote, the only action that has vaster repercussions for the universe than making a life is taking one, which is why I'll never understand why most people put so little foresight into doing either. The force of the time suck knocks Alana to the floor of the rocket ship hard. Our boy, she says to Marco, I can't feel him kicking. In one of the most devastating moments in the series, she asks Marco, her panic mounting, if he can still hear the baby's heartbeat. Marco answers by closing his eyes. Their baby has died. The war that they've defied, the hate that has pursued them endlessly, has robbed them of a life with their second child. As the soil of fang and the ooze of the time suck drag the inhabitants down into their midst, drowning them, burying them choking them in the physical manifestation of nature's uncontrollable forces in the shape of human hate alike, Hazel's narration says, quote, you know that old cliche about millions of deaths being a statistic while the loss of just one is a tragedy? If that's true, what is it when you lose something that never even had a chance to be born? Yeah, this is so heartbreaking. The juxtaposition of Marco and Alana embracing weeping, mourning their child, and Curdy being pulled under on Fang by the force of all of the galaxy's ill will is one of Saga's most memorable and disturbing, haunting. I've had a lot of relationships in my time, Hazel's narration goes, as we watch Curdy sink and fade, platonic or otherwise. But the ones I think about most are those that never quite made it to term. The dashing first date who didn't call you back. The lady on the train you had that amazing conversation with but never saw again. The cool neighbor kid you met the first time a week before he moved away. I guess I'm just haunted by all that potential energy. One moment the universe presents you with this amazing opportunity for new possibilities. And then dot, dot, dot. And then we get darkness. Panels of it. Pages of it. 
to close issue 42 and the six-issue run that comprises volume seven. A stunning visual and storytelling choice, a poetic embodiment of the emptiness that loss like this leaves behind. That line about potential energy is one that has really lingered with us. So much of life exists in those moments of possibility, the animating promise of what awaits, of what might come to pass. And death doesn't just rip a person away from you, it robs you of the chance to build with that person, to see what they would have built for themselves or with other people, to nurture and foster and sow. Losing the prospect of chance and invention, the ability to tell yourself it's okay to let go and give yourself to someone or something is a genuine tragedy. Saga's real mastery comes from being able to immerse one fully in despair and sadness in one page and then quickly dial up the boldness and the surprise on the very next page. Issue 43, volume eight, opens with a talking owl named Dr. Sheriff welcoming our friends to abortion town on the planet Pervious. From there, they journey to the Badlands outside of the creeping reach of landfallian political influence. The differences in the cultural, political, and spiritual beliefs rendered in this sequence abound. Petrichor, for one, reveres Alana, saying, quote, anyone carrying the remains of an unborn wreath child is a sacred vessel. Alana is appalled. Four, meanwhile, manages to express real remorse, saying he's dreadfully sorry. His identity as a caring father is his truest redeeming quality. Marco and Alana's child's death impacts them all differently. And Alana, Marco, and Hazel most powerfully of all, of course. But they unite around the loss and the mourning family in a previously unthinkable fashion for this collection of souls. As Hazel says, quote, there's one thing I learned from the unlikely allies we made over the years. It's that family is about much more than blood. Marco, we see on Pervious, blames himself for what's transpired. After Alana says, quote, there's nobody to blame for our pregnancy ending but a shady universe that's cruel and random, Marco says, quote, violence always has a cost. And we lost this child because of the life I took. Now, Marco is wrong to blame himself, but nothing in life happens in a vacuum. When the iconic animated dung people rise and attack on Pervious, Alana's eyes turn to flames and she works a spell with her hands. She performs magic, Rethian magic. The child still inside her has Rethian blood that has transferred its powers to Alana, enabling her to cast spells, but also causing her to vomit violently and voluminously. And this is such a torturous idea. This great gift, this strength that she's drawing from her son is also killing her. The lingering physical connection to their dead child is at once powering Alana and destroying her. And as if that weren't strange and painful enough, their son then manifests in front of them. Curdy. If you're still looking for a name, Jabara had told Alana back on Fang, might I suggest Curdy? In our tongue, it means sunshine. And here, in the darkness of their suffering, this little ray of light appears before them. The product of forecasting that powerful projection spell that Alana is unknowingly working, almost instinctually working. But also an embodiment of something that they cannot have, at least not in this way. It is a precious thing, ultimately, to spend even a moment with Curdy to get to know this version of their son. But it's also a temptation that could consume them, their version of wasting away in front of the mirror of Erised. 
Every spell has a cost, Marco tells Alana. And this one is particularly expensive. Forecasting hurts the heart. The magic is draining Alana's life force, but she doesn't know how to stop it. She doesn't even know how she started it. And more importantly, isn't sure that she can find the strength to after seeing Curdy and Hazel embrace their faces and horns melding into one. Undergoing a procedure she needs to save her own life means losing this new projection of Curdy, the brother Hazel has already grown to love. We're going to lose him, Alana says to Marco, again. It's always a marvel to watch Marco and Alana work through and process the various challenges and traumas they share together, often evincing, communicating different perspectives, but somehow with equal potency and insight. I know it's only temporary, but you let your girl learn who little brother might have been, Marco says. That is a gift. And he is right. But so is Alana. If introducing her to people she's just going to lose is a gift, I'm worried we're starting to spoil the kid. Oh, man. But Hazel has never lived a sheltered life. And when forecasting Curdy leaves Alana unconscious, Marco guides Hazel toward casting just a touch of necessary jumpstart magic with a really, really beautiful lesson about the role that doubt plays in our lives. This incantation is fueled by doubt, he says. You know what doubt is, don't you? Kinda? Hazel replies, hilarious. <laughs> Everyone feels it, Marco says, even mommy and daddy. Doubt can paralyze you, can, can make you not want to do anything. But if you learn to channel it, to turn those feelings away from yourself and out at the world, you can doubt what's impossible. And that's such an incredible way to put it, such a remarkable lesson to impart to his child. Remember one of our favorite exchanges between Bran and Ned in A Game of Thrones? Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave. It's not always possible to move through life with total confidence. But courage comes from finding a way to put one foot in front of the other, even and especially when that certainty fails. And to be fair, it's not easy to feel certain when an upright talking wolf with six <laughs> drooping breasts and blood-drenched <laughs> claws up to the elbow, and hands and forearms calls you forward. The name and wife doesn't do much to build that confidence. Inside the creepy old manor home, all manner of mixed messages await. Darling wolf pups napping on the furniture, but also a giant elephant prone on a table, a terrifying reveal about what happened to end wife's last patient. And the wolves are sleeping because, quote, their bellies are full of what? Curdy reappears to wait with Hazel. In the operating theater, meanwhile, Marco and Enwife engage in a philosophical debate. Marco's desire to save Alana is paramount, but he expresses the conflict he feels, the desire to protect life at all costs. Enwife challenges Marco's view. Quote, ideologies are lovely, but down here is only reality. This is quite a sequence in Saga. This exchange between Marco and Enwife directly follows a conversation between Four and Petricor about gender identity. Clear testament here to the saga creator's view of the paramountcy of choice, deciding what's right for you. It's immediately followed by a gripping exchange between Curdy and Hazel about what constitutes reality exactly. I don't want to hurt your feelings, Hazel says, but daddy says you're more like, like an idea. Can an idea get deaded? Curdy asks. Die, Hazel replies. 
And I don't think so as long as somebody remembers it. What a lovely and mature way to process what's happening. That kind of balm that soothes so many of us in real life. But it's hard to hang on to those memories, isn't it? You know, as Hazel's already learning and experiencing, she's struggling, even at this point, to recall what Fang Curdy looked like. And as this projection of Curdy dims and fades away, goodbye, baby brother, Hazel says. But what do we know based on just the mechanics of how the story is told? Hazel does remember because she is the one telling us. Remember also, though, what we said earlier about loss and love being so heavily linked in Saga. Hazel lost one brother but found another in Squire, who we'll talk about a bit more soon. She and her folks and four in Petricor make their way back to Squire and Goose at last. Hazel, we see, has learned how to fly once again, time passing in the turn of a page. Learned to open her heart back up again, too. One day, Hazel's narration says, a boy decided to break the rules. And that boy, she says, speaking of Squire, would become my brother. Some more Hazel narration from earlier in the story. Quote, my parents taught me never to get too attached to new people who came into my life, since attachment is the root of suffering. But the times I've suffered most were when I had no attachments. So who knows, right? It's the old better to have loved and lost idea in a fashion. And even on a reread, knowing what is coming for Marco, it's so heartwarming to see this family enjoy any moments of peace together. Alana and Marco rest in bed, Hazel nestled between them. Quote, the forces that wanted to destroy my parents and me were closer to the goal than they had ever been. But we couldn't have given less of a shit because while our enemies were close, we were closer. Closer as a family and closer to the new companions we gathered along the way. And sometimes we hurt the ones we're closest to. Hazel and Squire bicker, as siblings often do. And one day, as they're arguing over punk conk and trading barbs, Hazel says, yeah, well, you look dumb without a mom. And there's a gasp almost Not through nice. the panel. Her narration adds, quote, these days, I guess a lot of kids interact with each other over screens. But I'm grateful that all of my early interactions were in person. It's a real gift for young people to be able to see the face of someone they've just hurt. And that's the kind of thing that really sticks with you. It's also a gift, of course, uh, shifting to a Hello. slightly different tone here. To see the face of someone you've brought to the absolute peak of sexual ecstasy. (laughs) And issue 50 opens with a true ode to the art of cunnilingus. Remember early in book two how Marco and Alana had sex like strangers, close in body, but very distant emotionally. And later in book two, how they'd cast intimacy aside entirely while searching for their daughter. Well, folks, they're back because here in the blue lagoon of their secret hideaway on Jetsam, they are making love with such passion and devotion to each other that we get almost these like dedicated visual poems to the way that each of their body parts are interacting. I got to say, I, I, I'm, I'm in awe of his lower and upper back strength. Yeah, hold, <laughs> he's holding her. He's standing in the lagoon holding her. That's a lot. And she's sitting on his <laughs> shoulders, you know, reverse as if as if uh, riding a horse, but but going uh, the reverse way that he is facing. <laughs> it's this incredible strength from this guy, man. Alana's hands are, of course, on Marco's horns. Her I fingers mean, right are running through his hair, his hand on her breast, 
her knee over his shoulders, you just said, her heel kind of digging into his back. And then we get a sploosh word mark artfully paired <laughs> with Alana's climax. And then this <gasps> incredible exchange. I know all about female ejaculate, Marco says so proudly. He's so proud. That was all you, Alana asks, in awe of his newfound prowess. It was us, Alana. I just tried to listen to your body. Listening to each other better enables them to listen to themselves, to know themselves. And as part of knowing himself, Marco has decided to spend part of his stay on Jetsum perfecting not only the carnal arts, but the literary arts as well. He's writing a novel, a secret book, as Alana calls it, named The Calligrapher. And Alana's review is straight out of Journalism 101. So many adverbs. But she quickly turns into the picture of support. Baby, I've never been so proud. Page three. And you've already sucked me in. One more reminder that the earliest seeds in a story, any story, and particularly this one, matter. When Upshur tells Marco that he and Doth have been following their family for ages, but only got their first real lead from, quote, the landfallian grunt whose hand you cut off, Marco says, quote, which only confirms everything D. Oswald Heiss warned us about. Every violent action, no matter how seemingly insignificant, sends ripples throughout the cosmos, inevitably causing more of the same. Recall back in issue five what Alana says to Marco. She's talking about his conflict with the wings here, not the will, but the upshot is essentially the same. Quote, so the guy whose hand you lopped off comes after us with a hook in 20 years. Add him to the list. Goose, not Marco, is actually the one who chopped off the will's hand, but it still left the will with the metal appendage that will turn into a lethal spear when his own lance backfires, allowing him to punch a hole through Marco's chest. Back on the Jetsam shore, Upshur says to Marco, hey, if you just killed that guy, he wouldn't be hunting your family now. And that's true. But who knows what ripple effect that choice would have caused. Look at what course Hector's death sent Ianthion, of course. More on that in a second. Plus, that mindset is utterly contrary to the way Marco has tried to live his life. It hasn't been easy. See the march and the march's many fatal wounds. But it has been a sincere and deeply felt ambition. When he sets off to help find Squire, it's Goose, not Marco, who brings the weapons. Marco brought a shield. Yes, he did. Before he left, Hazel made her parents pinky promise that they'd be right back. Worried as she was about the danger outside of their camp. This is just so upsetting because this is the last time that she sees her father. Quote, it's tough for children to accept that their creators aren't gods, just regular people. And regular people will always disappoint you. The final issue of Saga's first half run opens with a truly foreboding cover, a feather resting in a pool of blood. The symbol, the feather, of the life that Marco built with Alana and Hazel. And it's resting in the symbol of that violence that they sought to escape, but that haunted their every step all the while. When the Will tries to fire his lance at Marco II, after using it on Four's arm, it explodes, warping his metal hand, sparing Marco in the moment, but ultimately creating the weapon that will kill him. Marco juxtaposed against narration from Hazel about how Marco felt the violence in his youth always shaped him, launches into the Will with clear aim to kill. He sends them both over the edge of a cliff into Ianthe's beach house encased in the jellyfish. And he puts his hands on the Will's neck when they hit the floor. They land on top of Sweet Boy's skin. Just 
horrendous. Another product of phallax all around them. Marco bares his teeth in a way that causes the will to flash back to his own father's acts of violence from his youth, which we'll talk about more soon. These cycles always repeat, unless the characters can find a way to break them. When the will flicks the little, <laughs> it's a, like an Xbox controller, a pink Xbox controller that also serves as basically a spaceship Alexa, Alexa, launch, they take off into orbit, pulling Marco away from his family even before he's killed. But that family down on the beach sees the ship take off, and it is just so painful to watch them, knowing that they know that Marco is flying away from them. They see the flashes in the air that must be his magic, his spells. They know he's on board, that the forces of evil in the world are once again trying to pull their family apart. Marco, weakened from his magic, grabs the Will's injured metal hand and casts another spell with blue fire, further warping the metal. The symbolism is almost painful. The man who wants to put down weapons, who wants to cast violence aside and live peacefully, is forging in his own hand the weapon that will kill him. Saga is, in many ways, a powerful, hopeful tale, a testament to the wonders that family and love and choice can make. But in moments like this, it's defeating, almost nihilistic. If Marco devoted his life to escaping violence before it could consume him, as Hazel previously said, then what are we to make of the webs of prior violence ensnaring him in the end when he headbutts the will and knocks him to the ground? The will is in his power. There's a real, no, Draco, it is my mercy, not yours, that matters now energy to this particular sequence. Marco is not frozen by magic, as Dumbledore was, but he decides to freeze himself to hold himself accountable to the priorities he set for his life. He chooses here to honor the pledge that he made to himself and to his family. Marco and Alana may have sucked at vows, as Hazel said, but in that fateful moment when he could have ended the Will's life with a shield blast to the nose bridge and thus spared his own, he chose not to turn the shield into a sword, to put it down instead and to look out upon Jetsam, upon his family, upon the decision he made to lead a better and more peaceful and purposeful life. And then the Will rips through his heart. Man, no more fitting place on Marco's body to drive his hand through than that tender heart. Man, it feels, as we said earlier, initially impossible that Marco could be dying in front of us, could be dead. But Saga, like so many of the other stories that we prize, teaches us lessons. And one of those is valuing what we have while we can. This story like a lot of those others, has made it clear since the beginning, um, you know, I'm, I'm rewatching Lost now and I can hear Ben Linus, dead is dead. Losing Marco, though, even, even with that understanding, that core understanding in place, subverts another part of our fundamental understanding of what Saga is, which is a story about a family determined to make its way through a world that does not want it to exist. From the beginning, though, BKV and Staples also understood and established for us something that is equally fundamental. Saga is about Hazel. It's about what Marco and Alana's choices made possible for her. There's a reason that she's the narrator in the story. Her voice coming in from the future to establish that she moved forward, she moved on, she found a way to live. And so there could be no more fitting but also no more desperately sad scene for Marco to flash to in his final moments of life than a conversation that he recently had with her, with Hazel, his daughter, on the beach of Jetsam, about how to find comfort with who you are and how to find the courage to say out loud who you want to be. He's reading a book. She's building a sandcastle. They are both 
In other words, living in and crafting other worlds to inhabit. As Hazel tells Marco that she doesn't want to have children, doesn't want to bring life into, we can deduce, a world so determined to snuff it out, that she wants to do other things, make other things instead, he holds one of her tiny feathers in his hand, this physical symbol and indicator, just like his horns, to so many people in the universe of the differences that are meant to divide. But for this family, have become linked beautifully, wholly, a part of Hazel's beautiful being. Hazel wants to do other things, she tells her father, make other things, find her own way forward. And Marco, of course, supports her. Honey girl, I don't care what you do as long as you're kind to everyone you meet. That's it, she asks him. That is the hardest part of being alive. And it's true. Marco knows it. Anyone who's ever tried to be consistently decent and kind and do unto others knows it. And Hazel's narration kicks back in here, parroting, echoing her words from the opening issue way back when of this epic tale, reinforcing for us again how the past informs the future, the cycles and connections that we all have such trouble escaping, but also reinforcing just as importantly that there is a future, that there is something to move forward toward, that an idea can become something much bigger, something concrete and real, impactful, a spark, as Poe would say, that will light a fire. Thanks to my parents, Hazel's words repeat, at least I got to grow old. And then over a bare and bleak, gutting image of Marco bleeding to death, not knowing if he saved his family, not knowing if it was enough, but ultimately knowing at least that he tried, not everybody does. Crushing! Really, like, <laughs> legitimately devastating. Devastating! God. It's, not, it's, it's definitely not something you're ready for. All this time later. Oh, my God. For Petrichor, Squire, and Goose. Our first glimpse of four comes, well, almost comes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. His gray dick in his hand. (laughs) Our good man trying to, and we quote, clear out this cannon before it backfires, but not Even his masturbatory pursuits bring him peace. The nude image morphs into the stalk, dead at four's hand. His continued stimulation attempts eventually lead him to picturing Alana. A shock to us and to him at the same time. Yeah. As Hazel reminds us, four spent quite some time trying to find and kill Alana and Marco, and his unlikely alliance with his fellow outcasts has proven to be more than a union of convenience. Real affection shockingly enough, has blossomed, albeit with plenty of force, trademark, petulance, cruelty, and witticisms mixed in. And that emotional evolution goes in all directions among the characters. People who spent huge swaths of their lives learning to hate each other, now aboard the same ship, fleeing the same enemies, pursuing the specific versions of the same ultimate goal, safety, freedom, some kind of home. Petricor's first comments about four in this volume is, quote, I hope Alana and that prissy drone of hers both get sucked out a hull breach. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> in time, that disdain will morph into intimacy and tenderness and real warmth of feeling. The relationship that four and Petricor share is the, the, the distilled saga experience. Two people who because of history and experience, have been taught to hate each other, finding a way to see each other more clearly and to love what they've come to see, only for death to wrap its hands around that awakening and twist. 
Oh, man. Petrichor is not the only member of the group that Four has to work to win over. Quote, says the dude who does nothing but jerk off in his room all day. <laughs> Isabel spews at Four after he calls her a queef of a pet who serves zero purpose. You dare to spy on my personal quarters, Four replies, like a complete dolt. This is what you call telling know, on yourself, a, people. It's one of my favorite <laughs> lines in the whole comic. You dare to spy on my personal quarters. <laughs> nope, but I'll consider that confirmation of my grossest suspicions. Psychotic. <laughs> Listen, Four, nothing wrong with a little self-care, you know? Yeah, nothing, nothing at all. I mean, like the the... The fact that your deepest urges and uh, shocking desires are often projected on your screen face is unfortunate. <laughs> it's very unfortunate <laughs> considering this Real particular pastime that you're engaging in, but still. Oh, man. Four. He should try wearing, like, I don't know, a hat. Some sort of over it. <laughs> but could he shield. see? Maybe he'd be blind at that point. Yeah, I guess that's it's he's, probably culturally not done. You know, but like when he's just in his chambers wanking it, or when he's yeah. sleeping and he knows that Hazel yeah. and Skirty keep and you know spying it's, on him oh, and seeing his oh sex dreams play out on his what face. An, it's like put a well, pillowcase over your face, help yourself. What an incredible sequence that is. The kids sneaking into four. First of all, lock your door in this in this rocket ship. Lock your fucking door. Okay. Second of all, man, what a hilarious sequence that they just go in. I guess like what else would there be to do but go in and watch? Watch Four's face as he's. (laughs) Good old Curdy. And yet. Even exchanges like that hilarious one between Four and Isabel lead to some kind of meaningful progress. Isabel is fresh off her tiff with Hazel at this point and witness to Four's dismay over not yet getting back to Squire to his son. And so she offers to go as his advanced guard. Petricor then volunteers to go search for Isabel in Marco's place. Every member of this rocket ship family finds an unlikely way to help the other, despite initially carrying so much, not only lack of feeling for each other, but active derision at at one point in time. Take Four's fadeaway-induced confession to Alana, where after saying, for the first time I can see myself as I really am, with all my countless sins in highest definition, he tells her that he's realized what an excellent mother she'll be to his son and then points his arm cannon at his own head. Not too long ago, Four was hunting these people down. Now he's entrusting them with his progeny, the one thing, the North Star in his life. In part because he can't stand himself, he's sickened with who he is and what he's done, but in part because he's grown to value their commitment to each other and their familial pursuits and the way that they prize that above all else. It's an incredible evolution of his character who then leaves us shortly after that. Sometimes family members or friends say and do things they shouldn't. Humans err, humans wound. Hazel is a small scared child when she says to Petricor on Pervious, can I ask you about your penis? But young or not, the question still offends. I refuse to be defined by my genitalia, Petricor tells Hazel. When you question the biology of someone who happens to be transgender, you don't just objectify us, you make us feel illegitimate. Representation matters supremely in storytelling, and Petrichor's role in saga and comics more widely 
is crucial both because of how meaningful it is to centrally feature a transgender character and because Petrichor's journey connects so deeply to so many of the core themes in the story, like identity and choice, belonging, about how her body with its wings and its horns is different from the ones she's used to seeing. She's describing a situation that is at once unique to her as the soul, as far as we know, offspring between a Landfallian and Rethian, but also one that's relatable for others who felt out of place and unsure. Quote, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, Petrichor Hazel says. I'm just super, super scared, adding, I just wish, I just wish I was normal. But Saga rejects strongly the idea of a normal, instead continually championing the virtue of what makes us each unique, what makes us who we are and who we want to be. Little one, Petrichor tells Hazel beautifully. You are unlike anyone who has ever existed, and that makes you exactly like everyone who has ever existed. I don't know what the future holds for you or your body, but I promise that you will never be alone. Ah, I love that. Petrichor is an absolute icon, an incredible character, gentle and fierce in turn, unapologetically candid, insightful, hilarious. In an absolutely legendary moment after Marco, Alana, and Hazel have gone off to the Badlands, <laughs> Petrichor casts a spell, praying. Saints above, I beseech you. In all my years, I've asked for nothing. But if you feel I've lived a decent life, hear this, my one and only prayer. And you're reading this, you're thinking, oh man, what could this be? The quote continues, please send me someone to fuck. <laughs> Is that one of the great... Real quarantine vibes from Petrichor here. One of the great setup panel, oh, setup man. and punchline panels in the story, along with... So good. Uh, Lived as she died high as fuck. Like, just like an incredible <laughs> setup in this moment. Amazing. True Who Among Us energy here. Yeah. After the bigoted and awful Ma, Pa, and Kid family nearly murder Ugh. Petrichor, the fuck buddy that Petrichor is seeking appears, blasting cannon fire at Petrichor's foes. It's four. A delightful romantic evolution and surprise in this story. Two characters who deplored each other coming together initially in their loneliness and then ultimately in the many commonalities that they previously failed to recognize or refused to acknowledge. As Hazel said back in book two, quote, I found that cultures often clash for the same reasons that people do. It's not because we're so different from each other. It's because we're all so goddamn alike. And despite the deep history of war and prejudice that has divided Four and Petrichor, they're connected by loss, by the desire to find something new to mitigate that sense of loss. They've both lost loved ones to friendly fires they share with each other. They're both ostracized from their prior homes. And they both accept and embrace living life openly and freely the way that they choose. They are united in their desire to find peace and love and acceptance. And so as unlikely as it may have once seemed, they come to realize that they can give that to each other. And how about the family Four has been trying to get back to? His son, Squire, on the hideaway planet under Goose's care. We're growing restless too, ready to break free. As Hazel puts it, quote, who the hell doesn't want to have an adventure? But Squire wants something else, truth. He asks Goose if what the will told him is true. Is his father really a killer? Squire's just a boy, but he's already felt the cruel cut of loss. His mother, of course, was murdered right after he was born. His father has yet to be able to make his way back to his side and will die nearly as soon as he does. 
I'm all alone in the universe, Squire tells Goose on their dreadnought hunt, and nothing in the heavens will change that. Squire wants to be a knight, wants to experience and live up to the legacy of his family, but he's never gotten to live that life. It's just an idea. But as Hazel and Curdy remind us, ideas can carry the force of life. Goose, though, always tries to look on the bright side. For what it's worth, he tells his hunting partner, I don't think folks got to get hitched to be happy. Old Goose has always kept his own company just fine. (laughs) The best. Goose is just nothing. If anything happens to Goose, I'm out. This would be too devastating. Remember during the Mandalorian pods when you issued a formal warning? (laughs) Right. I said, I I think you need to do it again. You have been warned. No harm may befall him. That's it. That's it. No harm. Fiona, you too. No, no, don't get any ideas here. (laughs) Let him have his chopper and let he and Frendo live together in peace. That's it. He needs a new chopper. It was fractured by the dreadnought. Terrible. He's got to get another chopper. We learn here that he got Frendo from his sister before she died. Goose is preaching the merits of a solitary life, but he'll do whatever he can to protect Frendo. And he's still finding his bond with his sister through his connection to her. Squire ultimately can't kill the dreadnought. It's just not in his nature, even though he thinks it should be. What's in his nature? Love and gentleness. Pops. It's fine and true love, too. Four and Petricor are in the throes of sexual ecstasy, bliss. With each other. But real feelings are blossoming, too. Four says, out loud, vocally, I'm going to come so hard. But his facial screen, that pesky screen, once again, betraying him by displaying another message. I love you. (laughs) Four, always ready with a tremendous rejoinder, responds to Petrichor's alarm with a, did did you want me to delay orgasm? <laughs> hey Siri, do you want me to delay orgasm? I'm pretty satisfied with what I've got. Whoa! Siri, you freak! <laughs> Siri, get yours. I love it. <laughs> oh God. The conversation for Four and Petricor turns serious quickly. They do love each other. And Squire also loves Petricor. They're building a family together. Their feelings are real. But can those feelings flourish in a galaxy that is in so many ways designed to stomp them out? You must know. The two of us have no future, Petricor says to Four, not knowing how true those words will prove to be and how quickly that his death is imminent. While he's alive, though, He's going to do whatever he can to try to protect his new family, including swapping the coalition's fang-destroying dirt to Upshur and Doff for the protection that he heard them offer to Marco and Alana. He wants it for himself, Petricor and Squire. Anyone can kill you, Hazel says, but it takes someone you know to really hurt you. It takes someone you love to break your heart, man. That is so true. As Four is working verbally to secure the deal, his screen again betrays the doubt in his heart. Please say no, it reads. This story will be the death of us. Petrichor, as forebelieved, agrees to the plan. Quote, I'm staying on Jetsma because, because the universe is complicated and I don't owe you any explanation more than that, Petri tells Hazel. Do you understand? 
Squire hasn't been able to find such clarity, and unsurprisingly so. He plans to run away. And when he confronts his father about his past crimes, even asking to see the stalk's death, Four lashes out. Do you have any idea how unseemly it is to ask something like that of someone who served? He asks, choking his son, the son he tried for years to reach and protect a hideous betrayal of their bond and a confirmation of Squire's fear about the violence his father is capable of inflicting. Four is a character built on contrast and contradiction. The opening scene of issue 52 shows him playing in the water with Hazel, asking her, are you all right, my pet? He's being sweet, talking about how he, unlike his son, would have no problem, quote, dropping mud in the middle of a congested thoroughfare. Charming. From Hazel here, we get this quote. My father used to say that there's no such thing as heroes or villains, that they only exist in storybooks, which is ironic, since pretty much all of his beliefs came from what he read in works of fiction. It is no accident, of course, that that line from Hazel, that insight into her worldview and her father's worldview, accompanies a scene of four showing real humanity and spirit shortly after committing such a vile act. He has done awful things, and his path has hardly been one of pure redemption. That's not really what this story is about. And again, as Jason just said, mere pages ago, he choked his own child. That's unforgivable. He has tried time and again not to let the darkness consume him, not to let it completely win. And just when he was close to breaking through at last, working his way toward a brighter future with the people that he most loves, the ones who could help him find his way to continuing to be a better man, Billy ripped his head off. While that head is still attached to his body, though, it read his son's note. Squire crossed out, Princeling written in its place as the signature declaring that he's running away. Princeling wants to go home, wants to try to be who he thinks he's meant to be, the hero in the story. He doesn't want a new body, a new identity, a new life. He wants the one that everyone's telling him he can't have anymore. And when Four reveals to the group that he abused his son the prior night. The reaction is justifiably appalled. Hazel tells us that it's the first time she had ever considered, even in a universe filled with as much hate and violence as she's seen, the first time she's even considered that a parent could harm their own child. Alana's instinct is to try to inflict more violence right then and there against Four to tell him how despicable she finds him. Marco, in fitting Marco fashion, emerges again with a shield, with armor. Once again, these items, these symbols that are meant to protect, not to harm. He's carrying magic mushrooms that he wants the group to use as flares. Very, very soon, they will turn into projectile explosives. When the will clearly high, carrying a sparking lance that we know the guild previously deactivated upon his firing, stabs four through the arm first. The arm he'd been able to turn into a cannon to defend himself. Not now, four says, not when we're so close. And as shitty as four has been, including quite recently, this is gut-wrenching. It's not just that he's about to die on the eve of trying to start a new life. It's that his son chose to leave him. It's that, though he doesn't know it yet, Agent Gale is at this very moment thwarting publication of the story that would have resulted in his new protection. It's that he's going to be deprived of everything he's worked for when it's close enough to finally touch. But four learns here what Marker already knows, and what so much of Saga reinforces. You can and should try to be better, but you can't outrun your past. Quote, I ran with a girl called the Stock, the Will tells him. You put a hole in her. 
Hey, Billy. Four's last-ditch attempt to save his own life involves trying to tempt the will, basically to make a trade, tempting the will with Hazel. We can only hope as we're reading it that it's a ploy, that it's not a real betrayal. And he plays back a childhood scene of his own pain for the will, claiming that he doesn't know why he's doing it. His own life, maybe flashing before his eyes outside of his control. We've certainly seen that from his character time and time again. The childhood trauma that's still impacting him, that's making him feel so unworthy of love, maybe in a deliberate attempt to manipulate the will. Either way, it's his version of what Ianthi pulls from the will's own head, which we'll talk about in a second, but it has no effect on the will. And when Marco tries to spare Four, Four says, what are you doing, you fucking simpleton? Didn't you hear? I was in the process of selling out your entire family. Marco's response is the clarity that has been building in our hearts as we're reading this as well. Yeah, but I never believe anything you say. Marco has devoted this new phase of his life to trying to nurture the good inside of himself and, and crucially, to finding the good inside of other people. He sees that ember of goodness and possibility inside of Four, and he wants to tend it. Marco tries a ruse of his own, telling Four and the Will that he made Squire and everyone else blast off already. They're gone. Telling the Will that he'll surrender peacefully in exchange for the once and former, the Will hopes, freelancer, letting Four live. Four's face, always revealing his innermost, deepest feelings, shows a flower in bloom, a petal blowing away into the wind. He thinks Squire is safe. He sees that Marco, a person he routinely tried to harm, is willing to trade his life for fours. He believes in that final moment that it is possible, actually, to overcome the horrors that the world has inflicted upon you and that you have inflicted upon it and to try to find a better way forward. It wasn't enough to save him, but maybe it brought him a little bit of peace. The will and Ianthi. Ah, the will, mm. the will. Boy. Extremely tough look for our guy, the will. Uh, doesn't get much bleaker and more painful than murdering Marco in front of our eyes. But from the jump in book three, he is a drug-addled wreck driven to utter grief over the stock, grief over the brand, grief over the absence of the two defining loves of his life, who, honestly, it remains to be seen whether they were balancing forces in his life anyway, but here we are. He's failed a drug test. He's lost the Hazel case to the march, but he doesn't even know it until his agent calls him to be like, hey, dude, you're fired. He's searching on Wreath, visiting Velour in the hookah bar, nominally looking for Gwen and Sophie and Lion Cab, really just trying to find some island of peace, some new purpose in his life, even amid the Will's descent. It's painful to see Sophie, and particularly Lion Cat, reject him when he tracks him down at last. Remember what this group did to try and save the Will. But time goes on and people change. The ones who fight for you don't always wait for you if you take too long. We noted before that Will is like Jamie Lannister in reverse. For Jamie, the impact of love and trust and well-intentioned challenges that he found through Brienne helped him strive to be better and truer, a character we desperately wanted to root for and believe in. Everything Jamie gained is what the will loses time and again, the stock, his lover, the brand, his sister, Sophie. In essence, his adopted child, Lion Cat, his beloved sidekick, who just has wants nothing to do with him. Sweet Boy, his new sidekick, murdered by Ianthi. There's no excusing what the will does, 
But a person can only take so much loss before the thing they lose is themselves. Yes. In Billy's case, though, losing himself requires first revisiting his past, remembering what being himself even means. Because Yanthi is holding him prisoner and torturing him with his own memories, a particularly cruel way to exploit someone with their own pain. The will's own trauma is the weapon that she is wielding in retribution for the will wielding his weapon, his lance, into her fiancé Hector back in the days when freeing Sophie from the three mole-faced members of the sextillion loss prevention. As we discussed in our book one podcast, what seemed at the time like isolated violence in reality cast a vast and sprawling net, ultimately bringing Yanti and the Will to the hideaway where Doff and Four will die and where Billy will kill Marco as they battle in the spaceship above the watery rock of Jetsam. And that message is reinforced here as we see the seeds of violence from the Will's past that sprouted into these weeds that spread through and polluted the rest of his life. His abusive father murdered before his eyes. Ianthi is a diplomat with immunity from prosecution and also, as we learn, has absolutely no idea who her fiancé was or what he was really up to with Mama Son. And it fits in nicely to this idea that's being explored here. Our memories can be rose-colored, our way of seeing the people in our lives the way we want to see them. But they can also be so unvarnished that they are then deployed against us, as the wills are, when that magical VCR reveals Hazel's existence after revisiting his own traumatic memories, putting one more would-be assassin back on our hero's tails. Ianthi, of course, is in no... (laughs) No position no. to play moral arbiter, still even more, even from her literal and metaphorical glass pyramid house, she casts stones with pinpoint precision. I realize Hector was just another rando bit player in whatever bullshit hero's journey you think he <laughs> Incredible line. <laughs> she says, but when this is over, you'll finally realize that you're not even the star of your own story. You're a goddamn black hole. Man. Uh, that one hurts. Uh, the villain <laughs> lighting the Joseph Campbell on fire. In absolutely. Front of <laughs> the villain always thinks that they're the hero. Uh, they would oh, be yeah. a very bad villain indeed if they did not believe that they were right. Ianthi is a monster, though. She calls Billy slave boy as she trots him around full nude, then costume chained and collared under her electronic control. When she corners Doff on Jetsam, she says she only needs Marco and Alana's skulls. The will, to his brief credit, ensures that Doff knows Ianthi will kill him either way. And she does, shooting him in the chest and leaving him to die alone. But Doff's final act was to grab the control that freed Billy. In a classic saga twist, this act of bravery and mercy for the man who once abandoned him to his fate is well-intentioned, but ultimately doomed. The will, once free, will kill for and Marco. He also has a warning for Ianthi, whose fear upon Billy's escape indicates how clearly she understands what unstable forces she is been messing with. Ianthi, I killed your stupid boyfriend. You skinned my sweet dog. We're square. Leave this place now or I change my mind. The will. Crisp and efficient prose. <laughs> yeah, um, straight to the hemi- point. <laughs> just pick up the pen. You got a Hemingway, a, uh, a burgeoning Hemingway here. <laughs> when he finds four, he's almost joyful. Huh, didn't know if that was going to work. Had to pry open my Lance's regulator. This isn't work for the will. It is pleasure at this point the revenge he has been seeking. When it looks like Marco might kill him, 
he flashes through notable figures from his past, his father, his sister, the stalk, Sophie, Gwen, Lioncat. And Lioncat ultimately is the one who pulls him out of the illusion that he can never see anyone he cared about again, reinforces that there's still something out there worth fighting for. Let's talk about Upshur and Doth for a moment here. Tough stretch for them as well as it is for every single character. They're starting off in a rough spot right away because Upshur is aiming to carve up Frendo for food, which is just real you-hate-to-see-it stuff. Terrible! He and Doth were, of course, stranded with Goose and Squire by the will and apparently did not pack enough snacks. But after Marco and Alana and co. arrive back, they become yet the latest example of one-time oppositional forces who have become unlikely allies. Our dynamic reporting duo is offering up the paper's source protection program. New identities in exchange for going on the record with their story. Print journalism, folks, is not only not dead, it is apparently the magical FBI. Put you in witness protection, (laughs) change your identity. Yes. Wow. Wow. Newspapers are thriving in the saga universe. Quote, through an ancient enchantment process, you'd each be given a completely new body. Of course, their offer to Marco and Alana fundamentally fails to understand what Alana and Marco are doing, what they're fighting for, what they care about, and what one of the foundational messages of their journey and of this story is. Our daughter's biology isn't a liability, Marco says. It's a gift. Incredible, really heartwarming Amazing. and inspiring statement. Absolutely. Four is more willing to trade, but he's actually alarmed for them. No offense, Upshur tells them, but we were ready to die on the job long before we ever met you. Tragically, Doff soon will, even though he's always been the more reluctant member of the partnership. But being in it together means, well, just being in it together and being committed to Upshur means being committed to his work. Brilliant, Four says, watching the pair embrace and kiss. I've once again entrusted my future to a pair of lovesick imbeciles. <laughs> it's no surprise then when tragedy befalls them. It's because they're apart. Doff spotting a mustached kingfish after his swimming lesson with Hazel treks off alone in pursuit of a photo he's hunted since grade school. As Doff bleeds out alone, Upshur's chatting with Marco about taking a life. He's never done it himself, he says, but he speaks glibly, as Marco observes, about the ease with which he could, the likelihood that through his reporting, he probably has. And mere pages later, he's putting that bravado into action. Look, he'd said to Marco, my job is to uncover the truth. Whatever other people do with it is way above my obscenely meager pay grade. But now facing down Ayanthi, it's up to him to decide what to do with the truth of her violence against Doth. Before Upshur had learned of Doth's killing, he'd said this to Marco. Why? Because you think made-up stories have never resulted in actual casualties? Putting new ideas into another person's head is an aggressive act, and aggressive acts have consequences. Face it, you can be a writer or a pacifist, but you can't be both. (laughs) Singer after singer here, man. When he hears what Ayanthi did, hears her boasting about killing the man he loves— He is not remotely interested in pacifism. He grabs one of the mushroom flares and launches it right into her face, tearing off part of her cheek and jaw area, and then wins her heater from her in a battle, fires it into her gut. 
And then she begs him to take her life, to kill her, to end it, taunting him about Doth's death. He stands there and watches, watches as she bleeds out. Her suffering in this moment feels like it's the only thing that's in his ability to control. And so once again, violence spreads, not only into the Jetsam Sands, but across this war-torn galaxy. Jason? Yes? My parents taught me never to get too attached to new people who came into my life, since attachment is the root of suffering. As everyone on Fang regrettably learned. So please gather the house guests, head to the lighthouse to teach us everything we need to know about comets. In January of 1066, Edward the Confessor, King of England, died. Edward was succeeded the following day by Harold Godwinson. Harold's reign, unfortunately, as the last Anglo-Saxon King of England would be short. Sometime after his coronation, a fell omen appeared in the skies, a comet. Comets were not well understood until the 18th century when astronomers began to successfully predict their movements. For much of human history, they were considered signs of impending doom. So it was for Harold. In October of 1066, King Harold was killed by an arrow to the eye at the Battle of Hastings. His rival, William Duke of Normandy, a.k.a. William the Conqueror, won the day and was crowned king on Christmas Day, 1066. The Bayou Tapestry, likely created in the 1070s on the order of William's brother Odo, which is a massive annal tapestry that records the history of these events, shows Harold being crowned as above him a comet streaks across the sky. Nearby, the king's courtiers gaze at the apparition with concern. The caption in Latin reads, Isti mirant stella, these people marvel at the star. Today, we know that that marvelous star-like specter was... Halley's Comet, named after Edmund Halley, the English astronomer who in 1705 determined its cadence. Halley's returns to our sky every 75 to 76 years, and those young enough when the comet arrives could in their twilight years see it again. Elmer Malsbury, a monk who lived contemporaneously with the Battle of Hastings and is known for his early experiments in manned flight, is thought to be one of these. In the 12th century chronicle, The Deeds of the English Kings, William of Malmesbury quotes Elmer as saying, quote, you've come, have you? You've come, you source of tears to many mothers. It is long since I saw you, but as we see you now, you are much more terrible, for I see you brandishing the downfall of my country. Different cultures interpreted comets in different ways. The name itself is from Latin, coma, meaning hair, and the Greeks thought that comets signified a woman with flowing hair, which they interpreted as a sign of sadness and mourning. The Romans saw a sword, a harbinger of war. And if this reminds you of book two of A Song of Ice and Fire, then it should, because this is an influence on uh, George R. R. Martin's fictional universe. In October of 312 AD, the Roman emperors Constantine and Maxentius fought a battle at the Milvian Bridge, a crossing over the Tiber River. The day before the battle, Constantine saw something in the sky that may have been a comet or a meteor that he interpreted as a Cairo, an early symbol of the Christian church. The historian Eusebius of Caesarea, a contemporary of Constantine's and an early pioneer in anti-Semitism, writes in The Life of Constantine, quote, about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the inscription, conquer by this. At this sight, he himself was struck with amazement and his whole army also, which followed him on this expedition and witnessed the miracle. Constantine had the symbol painted on the shields of his soldiers. 
his victory over Maxentius would reunite the empire and pave the way for Christianity to become the official religion of the Roman Empire. It's really incredible to think that maybe a comet influenced much of the history and the world that we now know. Though in Europe, comets were blamed for wars, earthquakes, floods, assassinations, and such, scant records were kept about their visitations. In China, however, as early as the 600s BC, astronomers working in specialized departments were keeping detail logs about the phenomena and many others, whose meaning they would interpret for the emperor. These records included precise dates, visual appearances, trajectory calculations, all of which would not be matched in the West until the 16th century. And the data is important for our modern understanding of comets. In 1981, Donald Yeomans of NASA and Tao King, a Chinese astronomer working out of the Dunsink Observatory in Ireland, published a paper on the long-term motion of Halley's Comet. Using the Chinese annals, they were able to deduce that the earliest accurate record confirmed to be of Halley's Comet comes from the year 240 BC is some theorizing that the Greeks could have been about 200 years earlier, but that is not confirmed. This is the earliest confirmed record. The earliest record of a comet in history comes from the Annals of Lu, a unique history spanning from 722 BC to 481 BC, compiled by Lu Bu Wei for the ruling Jin dynasty. The Annals summarized important events according to the seasons in which they occurred. From the Annals in the year 611 BC, quote, in the fourth year of Wen Kung, Prince of Lu, in the autumn, the seventh month, there was a comet that swept in the Pei To, which is the Big Dipper. Comets were even used in some early examples of propaganda. The birth and reign of Mithridates, the great king of Pontus, now Anatolian Turkey, from 122 to 63, BC, was said to be heralded by the appearances of two spectacular comets. Mithridates, understanding the importance of this in his biography, included a comment on all his coinage. The Roman historian Justin, summarizing an earlier history, writes, quote, The future greatness of this man was foretold by heavenly portents. For both in the year in which he was born and the year in he first began to rule, a comet gleamed so brightly for 70 days throughout each period that the whole sky seemed to be on fire. The Roman historian Justin, real Kevin Lannister. Territory right there. <laughs> it's not a, well. I guess because there is like a. I guess because there's a, a emperor Justinian. So it's like, sorry, dude, you just got to be Justin. <laughs> Amazing stuff, Jason. Yes. The more you care about someone, the more likely it is that your eventual parting of ways will be as sudden as it is baffling, and you can forget about closure. So let's gaze like the stocks eight eyes. Upon eight of our biggest questions for when Saga returns from its hiatus, we haven't gotten that closure yet. We have so many questions about what might await. We're going to do this just rapid fire lightning round style. Number one, how yeah. will Alana and Hazel process Marco's death? And if this is Hazel's story, then what kind of countdown is Alana on? <sighs> I know. Tough to think about. <laughs> Brian K. Vaughn to EW's Christian Holub in 2018 after issue 54, quote, I'm still processing how I feel about it myself. Oh, man. I think it's part of the reason that we felt we're going to need to give everyone some time to digest this. But it's a little easier for Fiona and me in that we always knew from the beginning that this was Hazel's story that we're setting out to tell. It's difficult when Hazel's just an infant because she's a character with no agency and basically just a lump getting carried around. 
So it was very much Marco and Alana's story at the beginning, but we knew this point would come where there would be an uncomfortable transition to really make it clear that this is Hazel's story and her parents are part of the story. But like for all of us, sadly, they're not a permanent part of that story. <gasps> Protect Alana at all costs. I can't, I can't Protect move forward her. without Marco oh. I don't know what I'll do. Number two. Is Isabel really, 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 truly, 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 truly dead? Like, obviously, the march said, our kind of killing's different. You're going to be dead and gone for good. Certainly the biggest support for the fact that Isabel is, in fact, gone out of the story is that Hazel couldn't feel her anymore, that the bond that connected them had been severed. We talked about this back in the eight of our Saga Book One pod, but there are a couple, albeit small straws that you could try to grasp onto if you want to find a little rays of hope here. Like when Clara and Alana first get into it over Isabel's atomization back in book one, and Clara said, you can't kill something that's already dead. I simply hit her with a banishment spell. Now, again, this series of events for Isabel is, is positioned quite differently, but you can hold on to that little ray of hope, perhaps. And then Hazel said, how can you be haunted by something that never really dies? So this idea of forestalling death, again, we're really grasping at straws here. We just can't believe that Isabel's gone. Hopefully she'll be able to manifest in some way, or Hazel at least can keep her alive as a memory, as an idea, as she will with Curdy. Number three, could four be resurrected? Issue 50, Doff says, look, as soon as editorial decrypts everything we're about to warm, I'm sure they want to publish within a week. And before they do, they'll send us everything you'll need to complete your makeover. And then issue 51, up sure they're sending us ingredients for your guys' transformation tonight. Right. So did anything occur already? Right. This, and this is powerful magic we're talking about. We don't understand uh, robot biology. Is it possible that using that uh, magical body change kit that four could be resurrected? Right. Just putting it out there. Maybe the 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 mind, the soul, the the code. Again, we don't really know much about how the robot kingdom functions. Uh, who knows? Number four. Shifting away from the dead characters for a moment into one who is mercifully alive, but just not present enough. Will we get more Lying Cat? Now, again, Lying Cat just not not present enough in this swath of not the tale. Not there have been calls in the fandom for a Lying Cat spinoff, a Lying Cat standalone story, which obviously it. we would support fully and embrace yes. with open arms and an open heart. But in the central saga tale, are we going to see more central role for Lying Cat? Because we need to. Just a delightful invention and not enough in, in this go-around. And this connects actually to, to number five because this is who Lion Cat is with. And these characters were also not super present in this part of the story. Let me just say, though, if you owned a Lion Cat, how precipitously would visits to your home drop off? For me personally, it would make no difference in my life. <laughs> but for people who have friends and interact with others, it might matter. <laughs> I feel like if I owned a, a Lion Cat, people would just be like is extremely reticent around my house or does not come around anymore. <laughs> the lion cat. No one wants to be called out by the cat. Number five, <laughs> how will Sophie and Gwen fit into the story moving forward? I, it'd be interesting to see. Of course, Sophie, round about the age of Hazel, I wonder if they forge a friendship bond at, 
at any point. I'd, I'd just love to see more of them. And Gwen is, uh, is quickly morphed into like really one of the more fun characters and how she responds to Marco's death, a thing that she professed to wanting, will be interesting to see. Number six. This is a crucial one. What awaits Goose and Frendo? I mean, Squire too, but really, what are Goose and Frendo going to get up to now after the horrors that just unfolded on and above Jetsam? How about peace, uh, a warm, <laughs> a fire in the hearth, and endless fields for Frendo to graze in? How about that? How about I, that? I would love it. That sounds blissful, unless I, I assume it's a lock that that's not what will <laughs> yeah. happen. But I hope you're right. Number seven. How will the will pay for his crimes? This is this is a big one. This is a big one. He has multiple people who have never sworn off violence, who will actively hate him and who will be trying to take his life. They're going to be extremely angry. Um, I guess my money is on Alana just going off the rails and being like, will must die. The will must die. Um, but it will be fascinating to see. Don't forget also that... Uh, Marco's mom, who's been chilling in prison, having a great time, doesn't know about this. And that is going to be a oh, devastating yes. blow for her. Clara and her prison tats coming for the will. I love it. Clara is going gonna, is gonna to go off. She's going to be pissed. And she doesn't care if she lives or dies in, in, the, in the attempt. She is, she is not one to tussle with. That's a great call because there's, there's got to be a natural way to bring Clara back into the story and the pursuit of vengeance feels like a worthy one. I like that. Number eight, and there are plenty of more questions we could add to the list. So many ongoing threads that we cannot wait to see continued and ultimately resolved. But number eight, you know, look, we love, we love the written word. We love journalism. We want to know, will the Heb still reveal the coalition's crimes against Fang despite Agent Gale's threats? I hope so. Put the truth into the world. You have to do it for the good of the galaxy. Listen, is it going to be a tough sell on the home planet because of the structural homophobia that is baked into the culture there? Yes. But this is a galaxy-wide war, right? This is a galaxy-wide story. So release the story. Release the story. That's what I say. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Mal... One moment the universe presents you with this amazing opportunity for new possibilities, and then we have something else to present. Because every episode, we honor the character or idea that rally the troops and advance the cause. And today, the winner of our open circuit casting call is... Marco. Has to be him. Had to, had to be. Our girl, Cersei Lannister, once said, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. But Marco's the rare exception. He died, but he also won because he died fighting for his family and for his beliefs. Marco's death is an absolutely stunning moment, a red winning-esque subversion of our expectations for how a story could possibly continue to unfold around one of its most central figures. And it hurt. But as much as it did hurt, his death did not mark the end of Hazel's journey as we know, based on her ongoing narration. At least one person makes it out of this. <laughs> Thank God. 
Marco and Alana put their family back together despite countless forces in the universe trying to tear it apart. They imparted important principles and life lessons to their daughter and their extended family, nurturing those bonds that that they defy generations of ingrained prejudice to forge and establishing new bonds with unlikely figures, crafting an extended family that they chose. Marco could have jammed his shield down onto the will, killing his foe. But unfortunately, he did not. He honored the pledge that he'd made to himself. I would argue, honor the pledge in five seconds after you take care of business right here. <laughs> it's that it's that thing of like, you know, when they, t- they tell you if, if the plane is going down and the masks drop, put it on mm-hmm. your own face your first, own then, first. Sure. then put it on the kids. Take care of business here for the guy that's trying to kill you first. And then for the good of your family, forswore <laughs> violence. But that's like, that's exactly the exchange he had with Upshur. Yeah, and Upshur was like, if you had exactly just killed this guy, he wouldn't be here pursuing you now. And Marco has to, he has to do what's in his heart, even if that means putting a metal hand through his heart too. I respect it. And it just makes me incredibly sad. <laughs> me too. But at least Marco <laughs> died gazing down onto the family. Yes. He knew he was fighting to protect. And at least he died knowing he'd stayed true to himself in a moment of great temptation. Not everyone can say that. That's very true. So here's to Marco, a generous and gifted lover with some great fashion sense, a real like hipster espadrille Tom's wearing charm, remarkable strength. Hottie. I mean, he looks great. (laughs) (laughs) And a heart ultimately that proved stronger than any other part of him. He is an awesome character. It was a privilege to spend time with him. And now his watch has ended. Well, friends, no podcast sticks around forever, but the best ones never really leave you, do they? Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee, Steve Allman, and Zach Cram, our indispensable producers and researchers. We hope that you enjoyed this week's episode and that you're staying healthy and safe. We will be going dark for a little while as we work to assemble the next binge mode season. Stay tuned for more on that. Soon, we may have a little surprise or two along the way for you as well. Until then, remember, you showed us the universe. That was, this is not pee, right? (laughs) Oh, my God.